Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to the Shackles Are Off podcast. Now, this guest is a belter. We've had some belters, loads and loads of them. This is, if this is the first time that you've tuned into the pod and had a little flick through our feed, well, just scroll back because there's so many good guests. We've had some brilliant chats and um, it's me, James Gregg. We've got Chris Millard here as well of the Barmy Army. Hello. Hello. And we have co-hosted this podcast for... Well, it's getting on to four years now, and we've had some brilliant, brilliant guests, some great tales, some brilliant times. You know what? Sometimes, Chris, I actually have little flashbacks and think, oh, yeah, we spoke to him. You know, when you see someone in the cricketing news, like James Foster, just being named, um, you know, a a coach of of England. And I just think that is... Smashing bloke. Yeah, like top man, top man. And um, Jimmy Anderson and Joe Root a couple of times and Alan Donald and Glenn McGrath recently as well. We've got another Aussie legend coming on, a, a teammate of Glenn McGrath's. It's um, Adam Gilchrist, and we actually spoke to him yesterday as we record this mm. intro to the podcast. He was great, wasn't he, Chris? He, I mean, a legend. It's like I'm sort of sitting there on Zoom shaking a little bit, but he was um, he was such a good man. He put us both at ease, didn't he? He was really, really good bloke. So uh, Yeah, he was. I think for, um, for an Australian cricketer of that era, it was hard to decipher the good blokes from the cannons but uh, I think <laughs> the Barmy Army did a good job of that and I spoke to a lot of the older guard in the Barmy Army over the over the time that Gilly was around and they all had really kind words to say about it. I mean that's not very usual for when we talk about that era for Australians so they were all saying what a great bloke he was and how well he responded to the Barmy Army but also to the big moments in, in cricket and he, he proved that on the podcast he's just a a smashing bloke, isn't he? he? He's happy to chat to us for much longer than he actually spoke to us for about an hour. <laughs> he could have gone on all night. I know he's in isolation on his lovely beachfront house in Perth, but it was yeah, it was brilliant to catch up with him, and it was just fantastic to to hear some tales from um, from the Australian side of the defence as well as the English side. Yeah, it was. It was really good. I mean, you're right. We could have spoke to him for a lot longer. It was also really complimentary. Towards the Barmy Army, like you say, he obviously gets the whole thing. He's he's a cricketing man, isn't he? He loves the loves the game. I think he's got a soft spot for England. You'll find out why actually quite early on in the podcast. Um, but he, he was actually sent his well wishes to um, all the Barmy Army members on their travels who are going to be heading out to the Caribbean in what? what well, basically the end of this month. Uh, Chris, for, for the really keen ones, but um, that, that that test tour yourself, you're out there as well. Looking forward to it, I bet. Um, for the first test tour in what seems like forever and ever and ever, and you were out in the Caribbean for the T20 tour, weren't you? And just talk, yeah. just talk to me about it because I've always wanted to go and watch cricket in the Caribbean. I went on holiday as a kid there, and they just love the cricket. But tell everybody about it, because even people who aren't going and, and probably ha- have got no plans to go this time, well, just sell it to them. 
just sell it to them because it is great, isn't it? It's a, a magical, magical place. And particularly when the cricket's on, I'm mighty jealous. So just give us a bit of a flavour, mate, if you don't mind. It really couldn't be an easier sell. It's, <laughs> it's like, honestly, white sand beaches, high-class cricket, very, very welcoming environments and communities, very safe islands. And just you just have the best time in the world. Plenty of rum and coke, plenty of rum punch, plenty of jerk chicken or any, anything you want. It's it's incredibly incredibly fun. The cricket in the West Indies is is what it's all about. I think people growing up in any era really from the, from the sixties watching the the West Indian bowlers of the of the early days and and now you're seeing the um, resurgence of West Indies cricket coming around again. A strong T20 mm -hmm. side and a a young, strong, hungry test team coming through the ranks. So I think they're going to be quite a force to be reckoned with in the years to come. And it's great to see. That's what everyone wanted to see from West Indies cricket team. And one place that we did go to when we were over there for the T20s was a little island called Grenada. We've partnered with Grenada Tourism Board and they flew us over for 24 hours. It was a real whistle-stop trip on the days off in between the T20s, but we went over there. We took a, a took a little view of the island, went to the cricket ground, went around some of the tourist attractions that all the, the Barmy Army and all the England fans are going to be able to do while they're in Grenada. And it is such a stunning place. 112,000 people on the island, that's it. And it's unbelievable. The waterfront, the harbour where the boats come in, it's just an incredible place. The, the food and the, and the drink and everything that you can get in Grenada is, just makes it such a special island. It's a lot different to the other islands as well. It's a lot smaller and it's the land of the spices. So I won't tell you too much. If you're going out there, you're going to have a wonderful time. If you're not already booked on this test tour, then there is still time. Make sure that you check it out on puregrenada.com where you can explore the island further and see what it's all about and, and prove that I'm not just telling you porky pies. And, it really is a special place. Yeah, he's a very honest man, is Chris Millard. I'm looking on that website, puregrenada.com, and it's, I mean, just looks great. Like, the sea is a joke blue. It just looks so, so nice. Um, and there's, I mean, I love the fact that it says, you know, if you travel into Grenada by yacht or boat, you can find a list of marinas and docks. I mean, that's a place where I want to go. So if you are listening to this podcast and you fancy it, yeah, have a look on there. Right, we're going to get into the podcast with um, the legendary Adam Gilchrist. And there's going to be people listening to this who I know are massive Barmy Army advocates and they just can't fathom the fact that we're saying legendary Australian who were kind of gushing over him. But he was. The bloke won countless ashes. Well, I'm just, just, just to confirm to all the listeners, you're gushing over him. I was... I was <laughs> I enjoyed speaking to him. He's a nice bloke. <laughs> He's also a big advocate of the Barmy Army. And one thing I would say, in fairness to you, James, I give you a lot of stick, but you were outstanding on this podcast. I think you really showed your your journalistic radio skills on there, mate. Well done. Thanks, mate. Thanks. That's the, that's the job that I tried to do. He was, uh, he was great. Anyway, enough about us talking about him. Just, let's just get into it. It's Adam Gilchrist on the Shackles Are Off podcast. Gilly, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's, it's really appreciated. Um, and you know, we start chronologically with all of our guests, right, here, here on the Shackles Rock. We, we start at the beginning. We're talking like before state career, before grade cricket, before anything like that. I want to know garden cricket. I want to know how it started. Where did the thirst come from for the game? <laughs> uh, yes, hello, uh, gents. Good to be catching up. Um, I was the youngest of... Uh, four children with a, a cricket mad father and uh, a mother that pretty much supported along the way and loved it as well. So I um, just copped an absolute beating in the backyard. I get dragged along to all dad's afternoon cricket games and sat there. And I remember sitting, my first memories of cricket was sitting in the change rooms of dad's cricket team. when I, I don't know what I was probably five or six years of age and sifting through the kit bag and, trying to work out what every bit of equipment was and there's obviously one piece of equipment that you could never really work out at the age of six where it was meant to go you know, whether it sat on your head or a kneecap protector or whatever it was but um <laughs> later found out but they, they were the first memories of cricket uh just loved it was in the blood um all those early 
memories sort of stay with you all the way through every level of career that you play. And at the end of the day, whether you're a test cricketer, uh, when you get to being a test cricketer, at the end of the day, we all start as club cricketers and, uh, and that's yeah. some are better than others. And that's probably where the foundation came from and the love for it. Talking of club cricket, I want to know how Adam Gilchrist at 17, 18 years old ends up playing in a posh suburb of London <laughs> because you played for, <laughs> played for Richmond, didn't you? How did that, how did. Did that come about? Yeah, I know. I must admit when I landed there, I thought, hang on, I must have got off at the wrong train stop here. The tube <laughs> station must have gone the wrong line. But um, a boy from country New South Wales, that was a cricket scholarship from regional uh, New South Wales country cricket. And uh, they nominated me and I threw my hat in the ring and I, I was awarded this scholarship to go basically for five months back in 1989 this was so um the trouble was it was my final year of school my year 12 or what's that over there is that a levels yeah a levels yeah nice so your big one before going into uni potentially um so mum and dad said do you really want to go and I thought about it for about a nanosecond said yeah I'll go thanks <laughs> now I did I had to do my HSC my final year of school by correspondence from from the place where I was living I was living with the club president of another cricket club it was absolute carnage but it was I was 17 um of course I didn't learn how to drink my first beer over there I didn't get into all the festivities <laughs> of the club and and learn that if you got 50 you had to buy everyone else a beer it's normally the other way around in Australia <laughs> normally you get the beer but so anyway it was the most important year of my life um in a cricketing sense and in a independence learning about life sense being 17 on the other side of the world trying to cook for yourself trying to live and, and get yourself to games of cricket but it was magical so good that because it, it, it is a little bit because a lot of cricketers now don't go to university or or whatever they're kind of in the academies and they push through that way and it's kind of basically professional from being 16 17 essentially aren't they and there's not the yeah. whole um you know rightly or wrongly the whole thing where you are like basically gutter you know in, in the dressing room you're like yeah. nah the 16 17 year old so going out going to england and playing at richmond that's awesome. I, I, I really rate that. Are you still involved in that scheme? Does it still go, exist that scheme then? Because obviously we have loads of overseas coming over. But does that yeah, still that, exist? Um, yeah, look, I, I don't see as many players making the trek over in the winter as what it was then. And I, I, I'm not sure, and you guys might know, I'm sure know better than me, but there might not be as much cricket played in general. Because back in those days, there was literally a game a week. If you wanted it, if word got around that you're a young Aussie over there and available, you could play every day of the week, whether it was going on some other cl another club's um, tour that they had, or um, I, was, I was still playing Colts. I played for a, a club around the corner called the Old Actonians. I was playing for their Colts team as well. But um, yeah, it, it, I, um, I'm not sure if that particular scholarship's going, but my, my father and I set up a scholarship to, with Richmond, in conjunction with Richmond, to make sure that we were able to send a young player there. Uh, and that, that's been going pretty much ever since. And, um, and again, it's not about trying to find the, the best young cricketer in Australia and, and making sure that they go on and play first-class cricket. It's about the whole life experience, guys. And it, it, was, um, it was just an amazing, amazing journey for me. And uh, one that, as I say, was the most important fundamental year of my whole life to end up uh, to get me to where I ended up like um it's like Ruti and and what he said about going to Australia for the year and the, I'm sure there was a play cricket scorecard from um this ashes where where we saw back into 20 uh, 2006 or something and it was um lion lion and Ruti against Cummins and Billings um in, yeah. a great, in a great game and thought how good's that that's what cricket's about right they get right to the top of the game they're still mates but they're playing at the top of the level but they've been playing since since they were kids yeah, yeah, it, it is. They, they were great stories, those. And see, I, I, I don't recall in that club year playing against guys that I went on and played sort of first class or international cricket against. I played against a lot of ex. That, that league down in London was more, uh, didn't have paid overseas players like the Northern Leagues, but um, it had a lot of ex first class crews. I played against Dilip Doshi um, in, a, in a game, former Indian spinner um i played alongside mike rosebury who went on and played a you know uh, a lot of first class cricket and um so the great experience uh invaluable really yeah because you know what you contrast that with the grade cricket i know a lot of our pals and stuff want to go over and, and try it out and, and whatever i mean 
it's a great standard, isn't it? The, the grey cricket system, and it's and it, especially for like English lads going there. But, but I bet it was without making wanting to push you down the road of saying, "Oh yeah, it was better in my day. It was better in my day," and be one of those. But it probably actually was, though, isn't it? The standard of grey cricket must have been brilliant when when you were coming through. I think. <laughs> Look, I reckon every generation says it about the one before. I've got no doubt about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure if you've read the press uh, around cricket, cricket uh, the situation in Australian cricket at the moment, but um, it seems to be a bit of argy bargy between current players and ex players. And we'll get on to uh, that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it hasn't skipped your attention. But um, I look at. I remember coming into grade cricket in Sydney. I was country New South Wales, going down to Sydney and playing in grade cricket and hearing all the older players talking about the 10 years prior and how hard it was and how tough it was and ruthless and there was no place to hide. And, and like what, um, like what you said, James, that, that um, you knew your spot in the change room and it was in the corner and you shut your mouth. <laughs> um, yeah. But that, oh, look, it's, it's all relative and, and different generations, different times, different lifestyles. But I think there's still some pretty good, high quality grade cricket being played. Um, and at the end of the day, I reckon the best players find their way through. Mm. Uh, no matter, no matter what cricket they're playing that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll navigate their way through and the best players, the absolute best players probably find their way to throw, uh, play really well in all facets of the game and all, um, all types of the game, whether it's white ball or red ball. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about a bit of your grade cricket stuff, but I, I was, I was astonished at this, really, right? So, Doing a bit of research and thinking, how did it kind of start for, for you in terms of getting into the Australian squad? So I see that you score centuries galore for WA. You tour England. You play against the counties with young Australia. You average 70. The next Sheffield season, uh, Sheffield Shield season, you average 50. You lead the dismissals. You score 189 red off 187 balls in the final. Um, another fast high score in the white ball semi-final. Nowadays, not even in question, straight in the test squad. With a seat, you know, with a with a little spell like that, purple patch like that, bang, straight in the test squad, not a problem. Chris, not for our man Gilly. You're in the A son. <laughs> Unbelievable. What's that all about? Who did you upset? Oh, look, mate, that, that's a bloke called Ian Healy, I think, who was uh, an absolute lock-in and had been for about 10 years. So uh, yeah. I don't know where my um spot was going to come from, but uh that I mean that in all seriousness, that was the era, wasn't it, of, of Australian cricket? That so I debuted Shield cricket ninety two or ninety three, started ninety three. Um, that that era of Test cricket for Australia was just an amazing run. So I don't know who I was going to throw out, and I got a taste of it in one day cricket after a few years, and that was enough to keep me entertained and keep me um, desperate to to keep churning out the numbers and trying to get myself in there and, and be the bloke when, um, when he'll uh, eventually finish. But it's funny, all those, you know, whether it's grade cricket or the first class, just thinking as you recall that, those phases of my Shield career, it's funny how you draw on all those experiences. Um, I mean, that's, that's what experience is, isn't it? Reflecting on a situation or a, um, a time that you had and trying to draw learn from it and, and I'm glad I did because when I had to move from New South Wales to WA to get a spot in Sheffield Shield cricket, I played a few games as a bat for New South Wales, went to Perth, and they kicked out a bloke called Tim Zura, who was an absolute crowd favourite in Perth, very parochial over in Perth. I got absolutely creamed by the crowd. They booed me. They threw stuff at me every time I went out to play. They hammered me when I first what? came over from Sydney. Um, but that was cool. I thought I've got to earn their respect. Or, you know, Tim Zura was a champion he played for australia he was played about a dozen years for, for wa so that was cool um so i got over that and funnily enough when i eventually did get picked in the one day team for australia that was at the expense of ian healy who was a crowd favorite in australia i yeah. went out to sydney played my first game i got booed all the way onto the field i got stuff thrown at me <laughs> i sat there and thought hang on this is deja vu i've seen this before so i'm glad i had all those stepping stones um to prepare me for the end result yeah, that helped you. That must have helped, surely. I mean, I can't imagine trying to replace somebody like you. In the in the same way that you know pe people were trying to replace you when you when you retired as well. But the difference was you retired. You weren't knocked off your perch. So I mean, that must have been 
that must have been a nightmare for, for, for Ian Healy and for you as well. But you know, that, that good yeah. experience. I mean, that team was so good that you were getting into, wasn't it? Did you win? I'm just remembering now, didn't you win your first like 14 or 15 test matches in a row that you played or something when you did eventually get picked? You must have thought it was a doddle. Yeah, well, the team got the team won 16 in a row, of which the first of that sequence started in Ian Healy's last test, which happened to be turned out to be in Zimbabwe. So that, uh, they played one test in Zimbabwe, then they came back to start a new Aussie summer, and that's when he got um, pushed aside and I came in and we, and we then went 15. So I won 15 straight, my first 15 tests. And, and you're right. I, well, I mean, we went to India. Australia hadn't won in India for 31 years. Uh, this is in 2001. They you know, dominated every team all around the world but hadn't won test cricket in India. So 31 years, we got there, first test in Mumbai, we bowl them out for, I don't know, 100 180. And I walk out there to bat at five for 99. <laughs> and like blokes are around the pit. I've never seen anything like this. Pitch is spinning square. Harbison, a young Harbison Singh is absolutely ragging it and, and nice. his left arm orthodox. It's, and they're just packed around the bat. And I just, for some reason, I thought to myself, right, I'm going to pretend I'm 30 not out. I'm going to try to psychologically take myself to not that nervous, oh, get off the mark, survive your first ball. I'm 30 not out, play how you would play then. So I started slog sweeping and hitting over cover and just doing everything against the textbook. I peeled off 100 off 80 balls. I thought, oh, well, there you go. And we won. We bowled them out. We get a lead. We bowl them out. We win in three days. I'm sitting around going, shit, what have these blokes been doing for 31 years? Really? We then get to the next test. And before we go out up at Eden Gardens, Steve Warren, the team meeting, says, Gilly, tell the team what you told me about that mindset. So I recounted it really well. I, I couldn't have been happy with the way I articulated my mindset. Get Pretend you're 30, play accordingly, take all the early nerves out. In that next test match, I got a king pair, the first <laughs> Australian to get out golden duck in both innings. <laughs> I tell you what, the great leveller, and we lost that test match. So that was the end of that sequence. But it was a an amazing group of cricketers that, that yeah, were, were sort of dominating um, in most conditions. Yeah. I mean, that, that team must have been awesome to be a part of, just from a pure cricketing perspective. But then you look at the characters as well. And we, look, with the Barmy Army, right, we, we love the characters. That's kind of what we're, we're about. And we, we love that. Australian, Indian, Pakistan, West Indies, doesn't matter. As long if they've got a bit about them fan favourite as far as we're I hadn't noticed that part of the Barmy Army. I thought it was just pure <laughs> textbook cricket. I didn't know that you brought any colour to the game. <laughs> you must have been very good at shutting out your ears over the years then, Gilly. <laughs> I could hear every word, believe me. With these this big, I could hear every word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I bet... What, what's it like going into a dressing room with those characters, particularly when you've displaced the Indian? You know, sod the fans and what the Australian public think. What was it like, genuinely? Were they welcoming? Were they encouraging? You know, it's all right to say they're not because times have changed and, you know, it doesn't really matter now, does it? But, um, you know, what was it like for you walking in there or not even walking in the dressing room? I suppose the first time you're amongst the group is probably at a hotel or a training session or something. Yeah. Uh I think, as I said, I got into the one-day team first a couple right. of years prior to that test team. So I had that two-year runway, had about 76 one-day internationals, of which I'd opened the batting more often than not with Mark Waugh before I batted in test cricket for the first time. And the guy that's at the non-strikers then when I walk out to bat for my first test match is Mark Waugh. So that was Perfect. there was an air of familiarity about it by the time the test selection came about. Even, even notwithstanding heels had been dumped from the test team, but, but go back to that one-day scenario, I, I didn't for a minute feel like there was any animosity or um, anyone looking at me thinking, why are you in this team? Because when they picked that one-day team, that was 96, and that was a time where not just Australia, but I suppose a lot of the cricketing uh, teams around the world started to look at not exclusively separate, but a, a more blended one-day team with a few test players and a few specialists. So that's where I got my opportunity as a specialist white ball player at that time. Um, so it was a, a new time for a lot of people. There was about half a dozen changes 
made to that one day side when I started and I had a, a few you know newbies alongside me so it wasn't just me that went in there and um, I guess what I do remember is the thing that I identified straight away having been at an avid follower and admirer of Ian Healy uh, and you know just he's a hero of mine really what he was doing and I aspired to be that role so I identified that quickly and went straight and realized the partnership and relationship he had with Shane Warren I thought that's the king guy I've got to build a partnership with him out in the field so I just went to warn as much as I said can you bowl to me as much as you can and he's not the most avid trainer, Warney, so it was a bit tough to sort of get in the bowl those extra few overs at the end of end of practice. But he did, he did it well, and um, and that's what it was—just building up, you know, a familiarity with a bowler in in partnership, and and that was the highlight of my cricketing career. Simple as that. Did we keep the Shane Warne? It was simply full stop. Take the runs; they're good, they're a bonus. But to stand behind the stumps or squat down behind the stumps with the uh, with Shane Warne at the top of his mark you wouldn't want to be anywhere else in cricket. So good. So good. I mean, it, the thing is, it was beneficial for, for him as well to have some a, a wicketkeeper he was in tune with. So, you know, it's, it worked. it's a two-way thing. Um, Shane, I mean, wow. I mean, I've not watched this documentary yet, by the way. So I'm going, there's probably lots of things that, and I can't believe I've not watched it before I've spoke to <laughs> yeah. it. Unbelie- <laughs> un- unbelievable. But, um, Shane Warne. I had a look at it two nights ago, actually. Oh, really? Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very. It's uh, it's worth a look. It it, it lets you it, you certainly see what the uh, where the fire burnt within to be who he is and and what he is. And I mean, I think I just discredited him a bit. I said, "There's no better seat in the house in cricket than to squat down behind yeah. the stumps." Shane Warne. The next best seat is when he finishes that over and you walk up and you're keeping the Glen McGrath. So yeah. how magical is that? But then you've got Shane Warne standing next to you telling you about last night's activities. Now, that is a win-win situation, <laughs> believe me. Um, no, Warne, he, he is uh, – we all know what Warne is. He is the biggest character of the game, probably. Yeah. Was he, like, pretty much the driving force in that dressing room? Because there's loads you – had, you had loads to choose from, really, didn't you? I mean, you've obviously got yeah. the palm air of – of Steve War, and then you've got like Glenn McGrath, who you know obviously he's just like a really impressive guy, and I mean just all all really strong characters. So that must have been fairly in, intimidating, but also comforting in, in a kind of way because you're all in it together, aren't you? You're all trying to win. You are, and I think I think that was the beauty of it. Everyone just slotted in and, and was able just to be themselves. And Warney mm. clearly, particularly if when you see this doco, you you'll know that Shane Warne was just being himself. And Warne, was I said we're all great cricketers, some better than others. He was, in his mind, was just like he was playing grade cricket on the weekend with his mates and then going out at night trying to have a night out. And he just forgot that the whole world was watching him do it. And <laughs> uh, But that was Warne. Tugger was uh, just a, a very strong leader. Um, you know, not too many histrionics with him. But then... Ponting, a young Ponting comes in who was a, quite a rebel, um, unbelievably talented, not off the charts rat bag, but a fair bit of, um, he was a playful youngster, but then he matured as time went along. But And then Mark Ward, Stephen's polar opposite. <laughs> yeah, they could not be more opposite those two, but that was brilliant. So everyone was allowed to just be who they wanted to be. And it was it was really well managed, particularly by, Stephen, when he was captain, and then Ricky, when he took over. And I think John Buchanan did a really nice job of just, just keeping it all on track and, and pulling the reins where he needed to and letting the team flow when it, when it needed to have its own bit of, um, you know, be let off the leash a little bit. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah, go on, Chris. Go on. I was just going to say, with, with it being a Barmy pod, podcast, you mentioned a lot of names there, Gilly, that, that took a, a lot of stick in, in that era. But you you tended to get off quite lightly from, from what I know and what I've heard. I think it's down yeah, yeah. to you not giving as much chat as Healy behind the stumps. And I think that was well received by the English community. But what, what was it like to play in, in those era where the Barmy Army was... Was um was obviously up against the best Australian team of all time, and when we tried to give as good as we got, it, it was quite a fearsome rivalry, but all good natured and and all, all for the love of the game, I guess. It 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 was amazing. It really was. I remember my first Ashes Test, two thousand one, Edgbaston, um, and I was as nervous that day as I was on my Test debut, and that 
you know, it's no surprise to any English or Australian cricketer or cricket fan, but that that's that's the match you want to play. Simple as that. You want to join that history. And so we fielded, and unsurprisingly, I dropped a couple of catches. I dived low to my right, outside edge off Athens, dropped that, dropped one to my left. <laughs> so I was I was I was pretty nervous about the whole thing. But but then when we were batting, I'll never forget Darren Goff steaming in. We, we were going well, but then England's got a few little breakthroughs and Goffy steaming in. And that um, stand on the side, is that the Holly Hollies? Oh, that just a Darren Goff song. Um, and I just turned around Goffy as he walked past and I said, geez, it must be fun being an English cricketer. And, you know, <laughs> he was just pumped and like he's trying to, I think he wanted to tell me where to go, but he sort of enjoyed my acknowledgement of what was going on in the atmosphere. <laughs> just amazing. But um, yeah, there and I suppose four years later, 2005, there were moments where I, I hated it, hated that constant, um, yeah. you know, chirp, albeit, of, you know, you knew deep down it was banter, good natured. It's just part of the whole rivalry. But I had a really struggling tour on 2001. And that was, you know, won't go into boy with fine detail, but that was the lowest point in my career. Probably I was trying to do a whole lot of things and not doing any of them very well, um, be it bat, wicket keep, vice captain, husband, father, I was pretty shit at all of it on that trip. But um, so you'd get off the team bus and walk out to dinner or something. And then there'd be a few stragglers on the edge from the Barmy Army having a beer in the pub and they'd start yelling stuff out. Not not aggressively abusive, but you just couldn't get away from it, yeah. um, such as the following of the ashes. So, but brilliant. The first time I looked down and saw there was a, uh, a list of, you know, the hymn book, if you like. <laughs> and I saw there was one about me. I was pumped. Oh, no. I knew I'd made it in cricket. So that's a, <laughs> that's a proper acknowledgement. That's so good. Breaking away from the podcast briefly, we just want to let you know that our partners, Charles Tirrett, have told us that if you want to work on your swing or watching comfort, from the stands, then Charles Tirrett has a collection of smart, casual menswear, perfect for cricketers, professionals, novices alike. All now with an extra 20% off with sales code BARMY20. And to be honest, Greggy, if it's good enough for Joss Butler, then I think it's good enough for us all, but it's especially good enough for you. Because as we've said before, having Charles Tirrett sponsored this podcast, your gear is honking. <sighs> Yeah, it is, yeah. I've had a look on the Instagram and stuff. There's lots of pictures of Joss Butler looking very cool in the Charles Tirrett gear. Mm, I'm not sure I'll look as good as that, but if I look half as good as that, it's worth the 20% off. Well, it's all about marginal gains, mate. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Check it out, charlestirrett.com. It's a funny way of spelling Tirrett. It's Charles, T-R-Y. No good for a dyslexic. No, no, you're right. T-R-Y-W-H-I-T-T.com. And like Chris says, that uh, code, bar me 20 for 20% off. Now, let's stop talking about Joss Butler, the England wicketkeeper, and get back into an Australian wicketkeeper. It's Adam Gilchrist on The Shackles Are Up. Oh five, is that the best cricketing atmosphere that you've experienced? I've not been to the MCG. Chris has on Boxing Day, but for the Boxing Day test, I've heard that's close off a couple of the England players as well. You know, in terms of just like pure spectacle, sporting spectacle. But Ed Baston rocking oh five, uh, the Oval. You know, great great days, which we let's be honest all kind of English cricket fans love watching over and over again because it's just like unbelievable. But is that the best atmosphere you've played in or experienced in terms of just pure love for the game? People just yeah. there wanting to soak it up and drink it. Yeah, look, don't forget Old Trafford. That's a, Old Trafford jumps out at me of that series. Yeah. Uh, a drawn game, but Jesus, what a game of cricket. Yeah. And then, you know, that last day, oh, <laughs> when Simon Jones rags one back and rips out Michael Clark's off stump with possibly one of the best deliveries ever. Yeah. And the sound of that stump getting barreled over and then the roar that went up in sunshine, a summer's day up the north of England and the excitement on the faces of the spectators just, oh, it was, it, it just 
gives you a bit of goosebumps now. It was amazing, even though you're on the wrong side of the ledger for most of that day. And I was having my demon battle with Freddie and kept getting out in the gully. And um, But you knew you are in a contest. You just knew and could see what it meant, not just to the England team, but the, the passionate fans. And and I think that's probably the way I dealt with it at the Oval when, uh, you know, what an anticlimax in the end, you know, sort of bad light stops play and mm. um, umpires sort of do their slow walk out of the middle and then tap the bales off. And that's it. The ashes are handed over. Anticlimax for some, but that's where the party started for England, isn't it? But <laughs> I remember just sitting there looking out the window and just seeing, literally seeing grown men in with tears rolling down their cheeks, sinking. I thought, Jesus, this is pretty special. And mm. it's sort of, that's where I thought, I just got to look this in the eye and observe this. Don't go and hide in the change rooms. And before we knew it, we were in having a beer with them. And, and it was a, an amazing experience that we were all very fortunate to be a part of. I think the only other time I felt something similar was in India in 2001 when we won that first one in three days and then we lost the series. And that was, they're the two best test cricket series I played in. The quality of cricket was extraordinary. The atmospheres were extraordinary, uh, but the respect between the teams was just on par as well. So pretty special experiences. It's series like that, isn't it, that make people just want to keep talking about how special test cricket is and, and make yeah. it a priority and that, and that kind of thing as well. Um, I love that on the, is it, is it some, what documentary is it? Anyway, there's a, some documentary where you, you're on it and you say that Freddie Flintoff's keeping you awake at night. And was it was it actually that bad? That's still not happening, by the way. <laughs> no, no. I, I said the line everywhere you look. Freddie was obviously he, you know, he was the leader of that team. Vaughn, he captain beautifully, but Fred batted and bowled. He fulfilled all the potential with both facets of the game that everyone always thought Freddie had. So he's on the field. He was there on the billboards, on TV, everywhere you look. Freddie was every time I went out to bat. Freddie's at the top of the mark. And I said to the point where I got home and I had my wife and two children at the time and to the point where I was lying in bed and I rolled over and all I could see was Freddie sitting there. But uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he was literally there, but figuratively, uh, yeah, he was. But I've, I've settled that with, with uh, Freddie since then. We've, we've spoken a lot about it. Happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was it? I bet he loved that though, did he? I bet he loved that. But then I suppose in many ways he probably said the same about some of the other Australian players who we came up against, you know, a year later. But uh, but but still, what what was what's your relationship like with Fred? Because he, he loves Australian cricket as well. He, he loves, does. doesn't he? He loves it. Yeah. Well, he he um, I mean, we got to know each other through that that series, and then the next year when he came out and was captain, obviously a bloody troubled tour for him and the team there. But but really got to know him when he came out to work with us on the Big Bash uh, when we were doing it yeah. at Channel Ten. Um, and look, Australia, you said it, Freddie loves Australia. He, he played on and off the field like the old sort of Australian way. And, uh, and Australia loved him. I mean, he ended up being king of the jungle in Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. So, I was uh, going to say that, so, yeah. So I had, um, I had a good time with Fred. And, and, and he keeps laughing at me when I tell him about how psyched out I was. I said it was the first time a team had a, a real – a, a bit of a different plan to me that they'd clearly well thought out. Uh, they picked up on something. They really exploited it well and they planned and had all this, you know, in outfield. And, and Fred just looks at me with this baffled look on his face and goes, mate, it was purely by accident. He said at Lords in the first one day, I was bowling over the wicket. The foot marks were too deep. So I went round the wicket because it was flat there. And all of a sudden one just went across you, or, you know, straightened a bit and you nicked it. And we went, oh, well, we'll stick with that. <laughs> and there I was in my mind thinking, oh, Vaughn, the architect, Freddie, the, the builder who comes in and delivers. And so anyway, it's, um, you know, perceptions only, well, well, there's no truth, is there? Hello, we've got some music go. flying in here. <laughs> Unbelievable. I've had the time of my life. That's very timely. <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah. Just as you're talking about Freddie Flintoff bowling you out, yeah. Sorry, was that was um, not planned. <laughs> was the, um, when you obviously had your retribution in 06 7, um, yeah. was, that, was that bittersweet or did you have an extra bit of fire in your belly coming into that series thinking, like, right, we've got to knock him over and teach him a lesson? Or, or was it sheerly just because of how good that great Australia team was in Australia? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think there was uh, that 05 tour um, throughout that tour and by the end of it, 
when we came home. I think it was the first time I felt in an Australian change rooms. There's a few, just a few little, few little pockets for me, a few little factions here and there. Not wasn't you know terminal. Didn't feel like it. Was, you know, it feels like if you didn't address it, it could have become terminal. It was, it was the first time. Other than that one Indian series in 2001, you know, all of a sudden it was the first time we'd been challenged, really threatened by England, and and obviously they got the result. So we did address that, and I think that's where John Buchanan addressed it really well. Um, we went and did one of those infamous boot camps, the old SAS-style boot camps, which no one wanted to do, but by the end of it, it was a, one of the most amazing five-day experiences. I think everyone says that except for Warney. Um, but anyway, Warney still found something, um, something positive from it, but, uh, it, yeah, I think, I think that we were able to rebuild. I think, I think Buchanan knew the skeleton was still there. We needed to rip all the old flesh off and put all some new flesh back onto it. And, uh, and he did that really well. So by the time we got to that, that ashes, we, we were keen to, to try, we knew that it was, well, for, for a whole lot of us, it was going to be our last ashes series. Um, we didn't talk about that. We didn't sit in team meetings and discuss that. But I think everyone deep down knew that there was a number of senior players that were going to finish within the next few years, so there wouldn't be another Ashes trip. But um, and it just built momentum as it went went on. Yeah, you know what? It's you talk about rebuilding. It's a difficult one that because when you've got a cricketing public that you have in Australia and also here in England as well, where everybody's it's like it's like the cricket team belongs to them you know so you know they they yeah. they, they they want they want Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad in that team right mm-hmm. and and they want they want you guys to keep playing forever they want Shane Warne Glenn McGrath Adam Gilchrist all in that same team you'd still have you playing now if they could probably I'm, I'm sure for a lot of the okay. public so but that's a difficult one because from our side you just go well, what's going on what 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 why why are you changing that but yeah, but then inside you know, you know that something needs to change. And that's a really difficult one. You just gotta just suck it up, stomach it, and crack on. I mean, that's the only way of doing it. I mean, because it's something that's England are gonna have to do in the next couple of years, maybe even this year, really. We've already seen it with Gordon Anderson drop. And that's a you know, it's a debate. I don't, you know, you know, you might not have an opinion on that. But it's a really strange, weird thing, and you've been through that yourself. So Try and explain that to us because players can't like it. They'll probably still think they've got a couple of years left. Yeah, yeah. It's a. Um, I mean, look, it's it's exactly the situation. Um, you know, we we made light of it before about this uh, Justin Langer situation. That internally, clearly, there was something from the players' point of view and 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 the the broader group that that is the sort of in, inside the inner sanctum of the Australian cricket setup that felt that. You know, and they've come out and clearly stipulated that they felt that there was a job that he needed to do and he was a perfect man for it, but now they can't see going forward that he fits where this team's at now. So, you know, we and there's been a lot of commentary from a lot of mates of JLs, and I've been one of them that has sort of gone, really, like, how how can that be? Like, the results are pretty compelling, blah, blah, blah. We all know we've heard the commentary back and forward, but at the end of the day, it's only those people within that can form an opinion, an informed opinion, and and then make some decisions from it. Whether you agree with it or not, um, there's no need now for the rest of us to to speculate on what's right or wrong. And, and proof will um, be down down the track as we see where it goes to. But and and the same with Anderson and and Broad. Um, I, I guess my one thing on that. Selection. I thought Michael Atherton wrote a nice or an interesting piece, I think it was today or yesterday, um, just saying that given there's so much uncertainty around the structure of the, uh, of the leadership group, the coaching, the um, director of cricket, um, maybe they might have been better just, just hanging on to that sort of quality for a little bit longer until then you, you know, get everything better down and then you make your you know, significant changes because it's, it's clearly getting closer that Brody and and Jimmy finish, uh, they know that. But um, yeah, I thought that was a good point from Mathers. Yeah, and it's because you look at—I mean, talking from a Barmy Army perspective here, Chris, you'll agree with me here. We're looking at Justin Langer, and we're going, 
hang on, this guy's won a World Cup and pasted us lot 4-0 in the ashes in the space of three months. And then yeah. the next thing, he's out of a job. What on earth? I mean, it baffles me, baffles me. Do you think he'll come to um, coach England or would want to coach England? I mean, that's a really tricky one for an Aussie, isn't it? He's a strong yeah. Aussie as well. He's not like you, Gilly. He, he has <laughs> big time. <laughs> oh, look, he, um, he, he needs to work that out. I, I get the feeling that doing it straight away, doing this opportunity right now, it just might be a bit soon. I think, you know, he's got it. He, he's hurt. I know that he was, he's been hurt and, I don't think, you know, it's not, you don't need to be Einstein to, to see that and work that out, but he needs a bit of time to heal and dust himself off and I guess work out whether he <clears throat> sees himself as a career coach or was coaching Australia the pinnacle and does he now want to go off into corporate world or do public speaking or do some commentary or a blend of a number of other things. I don't think he's going to be short of opportunity. So he needs to work that out. Um, I, I don't say this in a sort of provocative sense to anyone, but I do look at the setup at the moment with England and gee, he'd be a good fit if, if, you know, the dust had settled and he'd got himself not in an emotional up yours, Australia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A, if he went, that is a challenge there. Look at that. And I just, I can't imagine. Well, it'd be, it'd be awesome to see just Justin Langer working with Ben Stokes. I mean, the work ethic from Stokes is on par with Justin Langer's work ethic. And that would be intriguing to see what could grow and develop and sprout from that. But, uh, and, and Joe as captain, I think, would benefit from a, a figure like Justin alongside him. But, but look, as I say, um, there's, it's all pretty raw still. And um, there's still a few months, I suppose, until England need to work out what they want to do and, who knows? JL might might find that he wants to have a crack at it, but we've just got to wait and see and let, let time heal a little bit. Fancy stint as batting coach and Justin Langer's England cricket setup. <laughs> batting coach, Jesus. <laughs> we'd be we'd be up on the run rate, wouldn't we? Yes. <laughs> yes, we would. That's what we want. <laughs> Speaking of up in the run rate, what was it like to nearly break a world record, was it? In in Perth and the, the fastest hundred? You got oh. close, did you or did you do it? No, I was one ball short. One um, ball short. Hoggard bowled a wide that wasn't called a wide to me. I, I couldn't reach it. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I had no idea at the time. Everyone always says, oh, did, we are aware that you were one ball away. And look, before that innings, I, I wouldn't have been, if someone said who's got the fastest test hundred, I would have guessed Viv Richards. Yeah. Because that was Viv, wouldn't it? Um, if someone said how many balls, I would have said, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, 70? Or something, I, I had no idea. It was 56 yeah. balls he scored 100 off. And that was back in 1984 or something. So I don't know what's going on there. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was, I guess that was my, you asked me before about was 2006, seven, a real sort of um, revenge series for the yeah. team. And yeah. I, we were fired up. We wanted to do it well, but we didn't overdo it with the emotion of and, and get too caught up in that you know, let's stick it up and show them how good we are. Um, but that innings for me was an opportunity just to remember why I played the game because 2005, the game got me by the scruff of the neck to the point that in between that and then the first innings in Perth, I got out, Mont they brought Monty into the team um, yeah. in Perth, day one at the Wacker and a left arm orthodox got five for. And I was one of those five with the most negative little horrible pokey back pad that flew up. I got a duck and I walked off and I thought to myself, I, I seriously had thoughts about retiring um, after that series. So I thought that's me done. I think I don't, I think I've almost bluffed my way to this point and the game's caught up on me, exposed me as a fraud and oh I'm out. <laughs> and yeah, that was weird. I mean, that sounds melodramatic, but anyway, I went home and told my wife and she just smacked me around the head figuratively <laughs> and said, stop whinging. you got a dark big deal. It's not your first, probably won't be your last. But um, but I do remember walking off the field thinking, if I face Monty Panasar again, I'm at least going to get caught on the boundary. I'm not getting caught at bat pad. So I went in there in the second innings and we had a good lead up already. It was about 40 degrees, so the bowlers were cooked. And the breeze was howling and poor old Monty was just sending them up into the breeze. And I was just 
thought, right, I'm going hard here. And I uh, just got him up into the breeze. But it was it, it was the innings that reminded me what cricket was about, and that was just having fun. Like, and I know that's a blasé statement when you're doing it as a profession in front of millions of people on TV and so on. But that's it reminded me why I started playing the game. So that was a as a, a my, my that's my favourite innings. Not because it was the second fastest hundred at the time, but because it reminded me of the game. I know that you enjoyed the IPL. You've obviously been quite a big part of that, right? Is that did that just come slightly too late? I know you obviously got to taste it and being coaching, commentating, obviously played in it and all that kind of stuff, right? But oh my god, it would have been perfect for you, that wouldn't it? You know, if that had started in <laughs> 1999, for example, or something like that. Oh, you'd have loved it. Uh, look, I no, I, I played six seasons. So I played the right. first six on Yale. So um, I, I, I feel like, again, going back to that comment we made or that you made, James, about, you know, grade cricket, when was it strongest? When we were playing or the year before or the year before? So I, I guess I don't know if everyone feels that the, the era of cricket they played in was the most enjoyable or the, the right time for them, but... Always felt like like Warney as a figure and a personality was probably better suited for the seventies, wasn't he? Seventies, early eighties. But um, but I just felt blessed. That I had a sort of a almost a hybrid or a blend of both the traditional cricket career and then a really good taste of this new age. Six years of the IPL, which I played, that, and that was after I'd retired too. So I didn't have any other cricket going on, but. Um, yeah, I felt I feel blessed that I had that that traditional career that started in the backyard, then goes to school cricket, then I go to England under seventeen um, and try and learn in five months of cricket, and and then come back and you know had to deferred uni to try and be able to go to state training. So I was doing night fill, you know, filling shelves at the supermarket at night and doing part time work in a bank to try to pay some bills to get the training uh, and so on and so forth. So all those soft skills of life and all that part of it. I, I feel really blessed that I was part of that generation and that era. So now, uh, whew, you know, some of the paydays are different level again, but geez, we didn't miss out. We're, we're pretty fortunate to have a, a decent lifestyle on the back of the a professional sport that we happen to love. Yeah. And you know, what's also been really good. So the, um, obviously the Ashes, Ashes series just got, I'm sat there and I'm, thought well, we've got it on bt over here and it's pretty much the the, the fox cricket feed coverage yep. but what i do love i do love a bit of skull right at lunch and i'd love that with the little features to do with with Vaughan and stuff so I'm, I'm going online and i'm trying to find a stream and um i know i have, I have you know, obviously very dodgy um and i thought right great anyway i found it and it's great and you love it you absolutely love that and it's such a good team i always think you know if i was going to work you know in australia doing cricket media you just that's the pinnacle isn't it and and you guys have so much fun all ex-players as well and you've all got something to kind of go at each other about every day there's always something clearly socialized together as well that's yeah. added an, it's like another career on the end of it isn't it and by the way I don't mind me saying you know, you guys are all brilliant at commentary because sometimes there's no, like, journalist. It's just three ex-players sat there with microphones. And that must be quite daunting. I mean, I suppose it's not daunting. You've done it for a long time now. But, I mean, that's, like, seriously cool. I really like that. Yeah, oh, thanks, mate. It, it, I tell you, the buzz of, um, I guess, hosting and, and oh, well, you know, the first morning of the first test at the Gabba, the first face which is probably not the best thing but the first voice or is me as host of the broadcast that that's a big moment and that gives me as much excitement in this phase of my life as what I remember having going out and playing it's a proud moment it's uh you know it's there it's it's history about to unfold again and if clearly the main players in that history are the players out on the field but if we can be bit part players around the edge to make it a good experience or to add to uh, add to the, the the journey of and, and the historical experience of it all. That's a, a huge buzz. It's a big, quite a privilege, and and it's just like being in another team. It really is. And you're right. We do socialise together. You, you're sort of just you're all in it, and it's great fun. It makes it feel like you're you're sort of back in 
back involved again and um and we're blessed to have an amazing broadcast team with extraordinary technology um you know the cameras now and the access to players and and angles and so on is is like there's never been before so um it's just great fun it really is enjoyable yeah how do, how do you manage to um to balance your interview style at the at the end of a press at the end of a, a, a an interview with Rooty and with Cummings when it's been such a contrasting game and you seem to do that really well where you were very approachable for Rooty and not and didn't let Cummings gloat too much so thanks from the from the English point of view <laughs> is, is that a challenge in all seriousness oh look it is it's I mean gee you're trying to come up with something different by way of a question and I remember that that last night uh, you know what ended up being the last night day three in Hobart when the Ashes finished Australia win 4-0 and you'll all remember it just happened so quickly yeah. that collapse and then you know I was literally walking onto the stage before I was handed the bit of paper with who was player of the match player of the series so you, you're trying to come up with something half decent question wise but I remember looking asking Joe up and just looking at him and the look in his eyes and I just thought of, this is the same look we've had for every test match. Even Sydney, where you survived with the draw, it was like this this look on his face, and you just feel he really looks deep at the back. He's, he's engaged when he's actually talking to you in those interviews, Joe. You feel like it's just you and him talking, um, and it's not everyone else listening. But um, but yeah, I mean the the one thing about that is it said to him, it seems that so almost every post match. Um, interview, I've been able to say there were moments where you would have yeah. contemplated that you were going to be competitive in that game or where you were competitive, but then it just fell away every time that that consistency mm. that yeah, it's it's a it's a funny old challenge. It you never feel like you've and I don't think I would ever feel like I've sort of mastered it or have it down pat. You're learning each time and hopefully improving each time and not everyone watching is going to, you know, everyone's got their own favourite commentators, haven't they? They've got um, some they love and some they can't stand. And who are yours? Just, Come on, who are yours? So obviously Benno has got to be up there. I mean, just like oh, class, yeah. like unbelievable. Who else? Who else? I mean, have you, have, you, have you seen much of Athers and NASA doing it on Sky here in the UK? Because they're brilliant. Oh, we think they're yeah, brilliant. No, we, yeah, I reckon they're brilliant. I reckon that Sky coverage is is fantastic. We That's what generally comes into Australia when with the uh, the northern um, or the English summers. Um, yeah, Athens and, and NASA, I think. I, I remember, you know, played a lot against NASA. And when he first went into commentary, I thought, oh, no, I don't want to listen to NASA. <laughs> Almost like I, I wasn't even listening to what he was saying. It was just a thought that it was NASA, um, who I never really got to know that well in opposition. But, Jesus, he is class. I mean, he is, he's, you know, as good as any in the world, I, I personally think now. And, um admire i loved bill Laurie for all the theatrics and the voice and the there's that but i couldn't stand tony Gregg. but that as it turned out you know they just played off each other beautifully and by the end of it you and you see stuff now thrown out there on the internet and it's just gold isn't it it's just brilliant yeah. um we, we we talk too much there's no doubt we talk too much now there's no doubt about that well, they used to let it breathe, didn't they, a little bit? And yeah. it's like, sorry, this is getting really geeky commentary chat, but I'm quite enjoying it, so we'll, we'll roll with it. <laughs> but, it's, but it's quite like, they're not afraid of silence, are they? And I suppose uh, there wasn't as much laughing and joking and there was kind of that professional aura and there was probably a TV director sat there with a big old phone ready to pick it up and ring, you know, or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's kind of how you imagine it, isn't it? Because now it's a lot more free-flowing. And like I yeah. said, with the Kerry, well, like Kerry O'Keefe wouldn't have had a career 30 years ago on the telly. But he's no. amazing now. So yeah. it's, um, you know, it's, it's great. Um, oh, I'm glad, I'm, you know, maybe in 20 years there'll be somebody going, you know, I want to be the next Adam Gilchrist. You know, he wants to play for Australia, you know. <laughs> what, really? <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a good point because I now know, I've, I didn't know Richie Benno until a fair while in that he was an Australian cricket legend. You know, he mm. was, he was the bloke that hosts the TV coverage and then, Dad, this bloke, he's talking about when they played, which not that Richie ever did that much, but but Dad loved Richie Benno. So he he educated me on who Richie was. But I'm now in that phase where like 10, 12-year-olds are coming up to me going, oh, you're Adam Gilchrist, you're on the, you you do the commentary on TV. And then their dad will, the kid's dad will go, yeah, he played. And it's like, what? 
What? You really? (laughs) (laughs) All all good stages. It's good. Yeah, it is. It is good. Um, Mate, thanks so much for talking to us. Um, And enjoy that glass of savvy bee that you've got on the go. Very jealous. (laughs) Very, very jealous. Yeah, it is warm enough. Warm enough here to be enjoying this. I know it's early morning for you boys, but um, (laughs) but mind you, you've never let, the Barmy Army's never let a certain time of the day get in the way of it. (laughs) (laughs) You know it's too well. True. You know it's too well. (laughs) You got got a message for the Barmy Army from the Australian? Well, well, I'm sure there'll be a strong contingent heading out of the Caribbean. Yeah, plenty. Plenty. Yeah. Yeah, well, that uh, look. What I will say is, I think it was a, although it was one-sided down here this summer, it was a real shame that the the, the army wasn't able to be here in full force because that is, you know, that have become part of the, the folklore and history of Ashes cricket uh, since they've been around, and uh, certainly through my time playing and um, and any time uh, that you watch England play now, no matter where, no matter where they are in the world, so. Uh, a really important part of the game. Add beautiful colour, sound, noise, pictures, whatever it is. Uh, genuine cricket lovers. So kick on, go on, keep going. That's tough, man. Um, great of you to talk to us, and um, all the best for um, for all the all the coverage and kids not knowing who you are. Uh, <laughs> you know, as a cricketer. <laughs> top man. Really appreciate you coming on, Gilly. Cheers, Pleasure. Guys. Pleasure. Podcast Network.